Legacy Podcast presents Torque, a novel by Ty Drago. Read for you by the author, and with original music by Nicholas Allen Nelson. Dedication for Andy who read it, for Helena who edited it, for Anne who got it published. My deepest gratitude to all three of you for believing in it. The First Cog On the day his hero died, Rand Roberts was fighting, as usual. They were three to one against him, which was typical. Sometimes the odds were four to one, or even five to one, but never one to one. Not since he'd been maybe ten years old. They fought in the bowels, amidst the miles of tightly packed tunnels, drops, and knots that filled the lowest levels of the machine. Down here, where the only light came from mysterious glowing symbols that marked some of the walls, people like Rand fought other people like Rand, sometimes for scraps of food or clothing, and sometimes just for the sake of fighting. Today it was over a Ludling, what the upper folk would call a little boy. The three stainers had found him and surrounded him, ready to hand out some serious hurt. That was when Rand stepped in to express his disapproval, and, as was his way, expressing disapproval involved walking up and punching the first stainer dead in the face. No warning at all, just Rand's fist in the Lud's nose. Rand didn't believe in self-defense. He never let another fighter swing first. If blood needed drawing, then he drew it. And when someone hit the floor, Rand made sure it wasn't him. The stainer reeled with the blow and groaned, which alerted the other two. The second Lud was both taller and older, maybe twenty, middle-aged for the bowels, thin and wiry. He charged at Rand, throwing a wide punch that was both badly executed and strategically stupid. Rand stepped into it, caught the stainer's bicep in his fist, and squeezed. The lud wailed like a steam whistle. Then Rand delivered a left cross that dropped him before turning to face the others. This particular knot was fairly remote. It was too deep in the machine for anyone to actually live here, maybe by turning one of the surrounding gearboxes into a flop. Even Bowles rats like Rand rarely squatted this far down. Too little light and too many grabbers. Still, it was part of the bowels, so he patrolled it, swinging by here at least once a day, looking for trouble. This time he'd found some. A knot was simply an empty space created by the juxtaposition of a few of the countless gearboxes that filled the lower machine. These gearboxes came in all sizes, from fist size to large enough to hold a thousand luds. Some of the bigger ones were emptied out and used for flops, chapels, businesses, and, up in the middle where there was room, factories. But down here in the bowels where no one lived, most were derelict, turning red from centuries of rust. The walls of this knot were nothing more than the outsides of the surrounding gearboxes. The floor was the roof of another gearbox and the ceiling the underside of yet another. The machine, the lower machine anyway, was constructed of thousands of these ancient gadgets, all pressed close together and piled one atop the next. Most gearboxes were crammed with cogwheels, some tiny and some huge, all of them frozen with age. Who had built them and what function they'd once performed was a mystery that the starving lower folk had long ago stopped trying to solve. All anyone knew for sure was that the giant machine, the only world anyone had ever known, was broken. The stainer that Rand had slammed first recovered himself, wiping at his bloodied nose. His cheeks reddened, which made his stainer mark, a blotchy tattoo covering one whole side of his face, like a stain, show more clearly. This ain't got nothing to do with you, Roberts, the Lud exclaimed. Finders keepers. It was a common enough philosophy in the lowers. 
though Rand couldn't imagine applying it to the beating impossible deading of some poor ludling that you happened across in the bowels. But what little compassion stainers had extended only to other stainers. In a way, Rand couldn't blame them. Luds and lasses joined the stainers for the relative safety the gang offered. Fact was, if they weren't so ruthless to other lower folk, Rand might have left the stainers more or less alone. As things were, however, the Lud lunged. At the same instant, the remaining stainer attacked from Rand's flank. One went high and the other low, a fist and a foot. A coordinated move and not badly executed. It might even have worked if Rand hadn't taught himself how to counter it years ago. Rand smoothly caught the first stainer's wrist and the second stainer's ankle. Then he pulled and sidestepped, letting their foreheads connect with a sound like empty oil drums clanging together. Both Luds wobbled, their eyes crossing. Then they went down. The fight, such as it was, over. Satisfied that the immediate threat had passed, Rand headed across the knot to check their would-be victim. The Ludling huddled in a corner where the smooth walls of two different gearboxes met more or less perpendicularly. His dark, lower folk eyes were locked on Rand. He looked maybe nine years old, though the Ludling probably didn't know for sure. Rand didn't know how old he himself was. Sixteen seemed likely, but maybe he was fifteen or seventeen. He'd never celebrated a birthday and couldn't have named the date of Prest. You solid? he asked. The Ludling didn't reply. Did you get hit on the head? The Ludling gestured no, his eyes wary. Rand understood his distrust. In the bowels, there were mostly two kinds of people, those who suffered and those who caused suffering, prey and predator. What's your name? The Ludling asked wide-eyed. Rand Roberts. Then Rand added, I'm not going to hurt you. Rand Roberts? Yeah. That's your name? Yeah. Are you sure? Rand frowned worriedly. He thought he'd gotten here before the Stainers had started beating on the Ludling, but maybe one of them had landed an early head punch. Or maybe the Ludling was just addled. I'm sure, Rand said. You're big. I know. Really big. Rand sighed. It was the first thing everyone commented on. Rand was large for his age, larger than most adults. Tall and thick in the shoulders and chest. It wasn't something he'd ever worked toward, it had simply happened as he'd grown. He took neither pride nor shame from it, though considering how he spent most of his time, he couldn't deny that it came in handy. Similarly, while this strange little lud looked small at first glance, his neck was thick and his hands big, which hinted at weight coming to him later, if he lived long enough. Your turn, Rand said. What's your name? The ludling didn't reply. Rand waited. Still no reply. You sure you didn't get slammed? Rand asked finally. I'm sure. Then the Ludling peered around Rand at the three fallen stainers and remarked, You fight well. Rand shrugged. Really well. Thanks. Are they dead? Just hurt. I don't dead people. The Ludling met his eyes. Why? You mean, why didn't I dead them? Why do you fight them? Did they want your stuff too? My stuff? The Ludling went to another corner of the knot and picked up a satchel. It was old and filthy, stained with the oil that eventually soaked all fabric in the bowels. But then Rand realized with surprise that the satchel wasn't made of canvas nor burlap, but hide. Genuine leather. No wonder the stainers had wanted it. Rand could remember the last time he'd seen real leather. Where'd you get that? 
The Ludling's expression turned distrustful again, and again Ren understood. Some lower folk would happily dead you for the barter that satchel would bring up in the black. And not just stainers, but traitors, too, factory drudges, and even some priests. Don't worry, Rand said. I don't swipe, either. The Ludling considered this. Then he visibly relaxed. Where'd you get it? Rand asked again. The Ludling pointed to a narrow tunnel between gearboxes. Rand didn't know where it went, but he could tell it went down. Rand knew the bowels better than most. While other lower folk tended to keep to small, localized areas within the machine, there was safety in the familiar, Rand wandered, going deeper and further afield than almost anyone he knew. Even so, there were places Rand didn't go, wouldn't go. The Ludling's tunnel led away from the drop, away from the black and the middle market, away from the flops and news criers, in fact, away from everything and everyone. How far? Rand asked uneasily. The Ludling shrugged. How far down? Rand pressed. Two or three levels, the Ludling finally replied. Maybe a half hour's walk? Two or three levels? The machine, which was the world in which Rand Robert lived and no doubt would eventually die, was separated into staggered informal levels. Each level was nothing more than the roof of the gearboxes below it, just as each ceiling was nothing more than the underside of the level above. Every denizen of the lower machine conducted their entire lives within this labyrinth of tunnels, knots, and gearboxes. They saw no sun or sky, ever. Such things were for the upper folk, those who lived atop the machine, those who ruled. But even the poorest bowels rat knew not to venture too far down, for just as there were two kinds of people in the bowels, there were also two kinds of places. The good places, rife with stainers and thieves, were bad enough. But then there were the old places, even deeper than the bowels. These were ancient areas left undisturbed for as long as anyone could remember. Venturing there wasn't illegal, as such uppers concepts as law meant little at the bottom of the machine, but rather were avoided out of custom and fear. Terrible things once dwelt down there. Some said still dwelt. Yet this Ludling went there? You don't have to lie to me, Rand told him. I'm not. You're saying you found a hide satchel in one of the old places. The Ludling nodded. Then you're braver than I am, Rand said with a nervous laugh. The Ludling looked again at the fallen stainers. There's brave and there's brave, he replied, which seemed an odd observation for a nine-year-old. One of the stainers moaned and rolled over, clutching his head, so Rand supposed it was time to go. But what to do with the Ludling? Leaving him here was the same as putting him back in a fire. But encouraging him to tag along was an invitation to spend the next big piece of forever rearing him. Then Rand thought, as he so often did, what would Tork do? And, of course, there was only one right answer. Come on, he said with a sigh. Let's go higher. It's not safe down here. Where are we going? We'll head to the Black. What's the Black? Rand gaped. You've never been to the Black? Nope. The statement was ridiculous on the face of it. All lower folk used the black. They had to, if only to beg for food. Who are you? Rand asked, astonished. The Ludling looked guilelessly back at him, his expression touched with awe. It was a look Rand knew. You saved me, so you must be a hero. Rand sighed again. He was no hero. The machine only had one hero. Okay, forget it, he said. Come on.
The Second Cog Rand led the strange Ludling down a tunnel that headed safely away from the old places. He'd been patrolling the lowers and defending the defenseless ever since he'd grown big enough to win most fights. When asked why, as the Ludling had asked, as lots of folks had asked, his answer never varied. Because it was what Torque would do. His patrol routes took him from the Black, up to the Middle Market, and then down into the Bowels. He tried hitting most of the hundreds of tunnels and knots between the Drop and the Black at least once a week. But the machine was big, so he did the best he could. By now he could run each route in the dark, and often did so or close to it in the Bowels. Down here light marks were scarce and many passageways treacherous. Some gearbox roofs had rusted out, leaving behind weak spots that could collapse if walked on. And of course, there were no stairs. Stairs were for upper folk. At best, lower folk built ladders. More often, though, they climbed pipes when going between levels. There were plenty of pipes. Huge ones, some twice as wide as Rand's torso, ran in all directions throughout the lowers, connecting the gearboxes. A few in the higher levels had been converted by upper folk engineers to transport trapped heat as steam to the exchangers. But most pipes were as empty and forgotten as their gearboxes, except as ways to get around. Rand and the Ludling came to one of these. It jutted out from a gearbox wall and turned upward, following a diagonal tunnel into the darkness. We have to go up there? The Ludling asked. No fear, just curiosity. Yeah, Rand replied. It's safe enough. Want me to carry you? Nope. And with that, the Ludling hopped onto the pipe and started up. Rand was often told that he was agile, despite his size. His partner, Lucy, sometimes complained that keeping up with him as he navigated the bowels was like tracking a rat. A giant rat. A giant stupid rat. Then she would laugh, though Rand never knew if she was laughing at him or with him, especially since he usually wasn't laughing. But this Ludling put him to shame, scampering up the pipe with astonishing ease. More than once, Rand had to call for him to wait, which he did, patiently. At the top, where the pipe turned sharply before vanishing into the rusted side of yet another gearbox, waited a higher level. Here they encountered their first folks since the stainers. Bowels rats, the lowest of the low. None could afford a flop, so instead they lived as Rand lived, eating what they could scrounge and sleeping wherever they could find a decent hiding place. At the sight of them, the Ludling stopped in his tracks. Who are they? he asked. Just lower folk, Rand replied, annoyed to find himself a little breathless from trying to match the Ludling's pace. Like those others? The ones you fought? Some, but most are pretty harmless. They're just trying to stay alive. And they don't live anywhere? Rand shook his head. The Ludling asked, Do you live anywhere? I live with my partner Lucy and our Ludlings, Rand replied but not in a flop. We can't afford one. We scrounge for food and sleep where we can, just like these folks do. You have Ludlings? They're not ours, Rand corrected. I mean, we're not their parents. We just rear them. Rear them? Raise them. Keep them fed and safe. Look, you have to know what rearing is. It's the difference between a Lud and a Ludling. What is? Rand rolled his eyes. A Lud or Lass is a lower folk who makes their own way in the machine. A Ludling or Lassling is too young or too weak to get by on their own, so they need a Lud or Lass to rear them. How do you not know this? Oh, which way now? 
Exasperated, Rand pointed down a tunnel. Along the way, they stopped at a cistern, a spot on the floor where a pool of shallow water had formed from condensing steam escaping from an overhead pipe. Cisterns were the lower folk's chief source of water, and the bigger ones were always in dispute. Nobody owned them. By long-standing tradition, the water they collected was free to all. But occasionally, the Stainers tried to lay claim to one, hoping to broaden their influence. Whenever they did, Rand stepped in and convinced them otherwise. He now knelt and scooped a handful of warm, oily water into his mouth, more habit than need. Thirsty? he asked the Ludling. Nope. You sure? The next cistern's way up in the black. The Ludling shrugged. Rand nodded. As the two of them continued along the narrow passage, moving between various gearboxes, Rand decided to see if he'd earned some trust. You still haven't told me your name. No answer. Not fair, Rand said, faking hurt feelings. I told you my name. Don't have one, the Ludling replied. Then what do people call you? That doesn't matter. It's not my name. Which was definitely a weird thing to say. But before Rand could muster a reply, the Ludling remarked, You never answered my question. Which question? You've asked a lot of them. Why did you fight those Luds for me? They'd reached the outside of a large gearbox. The tunnel would have ended right there if not for a big, jagged hole in the rusted surface cut by someone in the distant past. There's no light mark in there, Rand warned. Watch your step. Nodding, the Ludling slipped smoothly into the darkness. Still waiting, he called back. So Rand gave him his answer. I did it because you needed my help. The folks we passed just now, they knew you. So did the Luds and the Nought. Nobody knows everybody in the Lowers, Rand replied, but more know me than most. Because you help them? I guess. Why do you help them? It's what I do. Rand couldn't read the Ludling's face, too dark, but he heard the hopeful hesitation in his voice. So you fought to protect me? Yeah. I didn't think anybody did that. Most don't, Rand replied. I do. So, ready to tell me your name? Like I said, I don't have one. Everyone has a name. Nobody's that poor. The Ludling didn't reply. Finally, Rand said, Then I guess I'll just have to call you No Name. He'd meant it as a mild jab, but No Name didn't take it that way. He simply stopped in silhouette on the far side of the gearbox, where another larger jagged hole offered access to a lighted knot. That works, he remarked. Rand shook his head in wonder. He followed No Name through the gearbox and into the knot beyond. This open space was larger than the one in which Rand had fought the Stainers, taller, too, with pipes, chains, and rotted cables running in orderly lines across the ceiling that was at least thirty feet above his head. Against the far wall stood a ladder, old but sturdy. Up there? No Name asked. Up there, Rand replied. The Ludling made even quicker work of the ladder than he had the pipe. With Rand following after him, they climbed through three full levels, leaving the bowels behind in favor of the lowers proper. Here were the flops that No Name had asked about, smallish, emptied-out gearboxes in which some people made what passed for homes, so long as they had enough coin for the rent. Flops were owned by traders, lower folk who kept shops up in the middle market, or by drudges with steady-paying jobs in one of the factories. These Luds were the only ones who could afford to lay claim to one or more unused gearboxes, clear them out, and turn them into cheap living spaces. 
Then they'd lease these grungy little dives out to other lower folk, those few who could afford the rent. If anyone failed to pay even once, the owner usually bribed a few keepers to go down and evict the tenant. Rand didn't know too many flop folks and even fewer owners. No bowels rats here. Even the stainers had to squat in the knots and tunnels further down. He'd heard the insides of these gearboxes could be pretty nice, with real beds and proper furniture. And even chairs. Rand had never really seen the point of chairs. If he needed to rest his legs, the floor worked just fine. The very idea of owning an object just for putting your ass on it seemed wasteful. Two levels higher, he and No Name finally arrived in the black. It was a market, though not the kind that the upper lords or their keepers approved of. No licensed tradesmen here. Very few, if any, of the offered wares came from the upper-owned factories. And the quality of most of the merchandise peaked at questionable, and went downhill from there. The black currently occupied a big knot, with tall gearboxes rising dozens of feet on all sides. Sheer walls of metal peppered with leaky pipes that jetted steam into the air, obscuring the high ceiling. The floor was just the rooftops of a dozen lower gearboxes, with bits of scrap metal laid over the larger drops in between to prevent anyone, ludlings or lastlings usually, from falling into them. Everything, of course, was made of metal, as was the whole of the machine. Iron and steel. In the lowers, there was no such thing as ground. Concepts like dirt or soil existed only in old stories as mythical and irrelevant as trees and flowers. Rand had heard tell that such things could be found in the uppers, but he never expected to see one. Few lower folk visited the upper machine, and those who did never came back. People hurried past, saying nothing to either Rand or No Name. Many of these folks knew Rand, usually because he'd come to their aid or the aid of someone they cared about. Even so, he didn't expect any hellos or welcoming smiles. In the lowers, you could rarely afford a break from the business of surviving, because business was always bad. The black frequently changed locations, disappearing from one big knot only to reappear in another. The point was to stay ahead of the keepers, whom the upper lords periodically sent down to find and raid the illegal market. On those occasions, buyers were chased off and sellers beaten or arrested. Some of the latter were never seen again. Even so, the black persisted, with each new location quickly spreading by word of mouth, and it remained a busy and productive place. All around Rand and No Name, hopeful merchants had set up makeshift shops where they hawked cheap goods, either homemade or swiped. Barkers announced their wares for barter, waving spoiled food or shoddily made clothing. This was where the poorest denizens of the machine came to haggle for what they needed to live, and while commerce was often hasty and noisy, at least it was peaceful. Usually. Rand stopped and searched the crowd. No sign of Lucy or the Yanceys, at least not yet, but they'd show up soon enough. They knew his schedule. Meanwhile, No Name stood beside him, gaping at everything. If you don't know about the black, Rand asked, how do you find food? No Name wouldn't meet his eyes. I get by. Yeah, but how? The Ludling didn't answer. Someone yelled, Rand! He spotted Lucy Stamper running toward them, navigating the sea of jostling lower folk, some of whom cursed her absently, and then continued on their way. Though perhaps a year his senior, Lucy was barely half Rand's height. She had a thick mane of red hair with freckles lathering her cheeks and forehead. She wore a brown canvas dress, the only one she owned, little more than a sack with holes, but taken in here and there to give it shape. A nice shape, Rand often thought. In her wake, she dragged the Yancey twins, Jad and Jared, 
two tow-headed eight-year-old ludlings. Lucy and Rand had found them both hiding in the bowels, scared and hungry. Just two more orphans whose parents, like Lucy's own, had been worked to death in the factories. Lucy had begun rearing them at once. Before long, both ludlings started calling her Mama and Rand Papa. Lucy loved it, and Rand... Well, he was okay with it, he supposed. They were goodlings. Lucy was Rand's partner and oldest friend. They'd stumbled across one another in the deep bowels when they'd both been about no-name's age. Rand, lost and starving at the time, had nonetheless jumped to Lucy's defense when a grabber had caught her by the arm. He'd gotten the terrified lassling free and dragged her to safety. Then, when the paralysis had worn off, Lucy had offered to repay the kindness by showing Rand how to scrounge up a meal. They'd been all but inseparable ever since. Lucy herself had been orphaned at four and subsequently reared by one of the Black's best healers, who had later died, having lived to the ripe old age of 38. But before she went, she'd imparted her secrets to Lucy, who had become a well-respected healer in her own right. The barter she earned by treating the lower sick and injured had kept them both, and then later Jad and Jared, fed ever since. If Lucy had one fault in most folks' eyes, it was her tendency to offer free services to those too poor to trade for them. Rand loved her for that. It was very torque. Rand wondered what Lucy's reaction in No Name would be. Would she want to rear him, too? But before he could find out, before Lucy and the Yanceys had even reached him, the Stainers attacked. These weren't the same Luds from before. Those Stainers would be recuperating for days. But they had friends, plenty of them. And there wasn't a lower Lud wearing the tattoo who didn't hate Rand Roberts, even if they didn't yet know about today's skirmish. This time there were four of them, all armed with makeshift shanks, the weapon of choice in the lowers. Easy to make and easy to get rid of if the keepers came looking. It was illegal for lower folk to carry weapons. As the stainers closed in on Rand, no name, standing beside him, froze, probably in fear. One of them slashed wordlessly at Rand's face. Rand ducked and drove his fist into the wielder's gut. It was a solid hit, and the Lud's breath escaped him in a long wheeze. Then, as he doubled over, Rand threw him into the next stainer, who brandished his own shank like he might know what he was doing with it. Not that it mattered. Both stainers went down hard and stayed there. Rand whirled on the remaining two. Their ambush foiled. One of them grabbed a passing lass. Her name was Loud Jenny, though Rand had no idea why, since she rarely said anything. Not even now, when the stainer pressed his blade against her skinny throat. Jenny was possibly the oldest person Rand knew, having recently bragged that she'd seen her 40th birthday. Suddenly, as if the entire black had realized what was happening, an audience collected and a hush fell over the big knot. The last stainer saw this and grinned toothlessly. Don't move, Roberts, growled his friend with the hostage, or I'll paint you with her blood. Rand didn't move. We've had enough of you, the grinning Lud said always messing up deals that ain't your concern. You've cost us time and trouble and most of all respect. Respect, Rand echoed. You terrorize innocent lower folk into paying you to protect them, except the only ones you protect them against is yourselves. And you want them to respect you for that? It's just fancy swiping. The stainer ignored him. Let me tell you how this'll go. I'm gonna take this shank and carve my name in your forehead. I won't dead you. That won't send the right message. I'll just mark you for life. And after that, the bowels, rats, and drudges around here will know not to mess with the stainers. Rand pretended to consider this. And if I don't want your name on my forehead? 
Then Boxer here's gonna slice and dice the old lass. Ain't that right, Boxer? Solid bullseye, Boxer said with a sneer. I don't even know where Rand lied. So if you come at me with that shank, I'll take it away from you and break both your arms. The one called Bullseye looked unconvinced. Rand Roberts, protector of the innocent, let some old lass get deaded just so his pretty face won't be slashed? That don't ring true. He advanced, still grinning. The crowd's collective expression seemed to be equal parts frightened and excited. Most of them knew Lao Jenny, but the chances of anyone lifting a finger in her defense were slim to none. Then Rand spotted Lucy. The lass had somehow managed to find a jagged length of iron somewhere and was now sneaking up on Boxer with the makeshift club in her tiny hands. Her eyes met his and Rand shook his head. The stainer was twice her size. Either she'd piss him off and his shank would end up at her throat instead of Jenny's, or she'd hit him hard enough to dead him. Neither way worked as far as Rand was concerned. She scowled, but to his immense relief, backed off. Now you keep good and still, Bullseye said, coming within striking range. Don't want the sweet little lass to get sliced, do ya? Ran asked himself one question, a familiar one, practically his personal motto. What would Torque do? He'd make something happen. That's what he'd do. Bullseye was very close now, his blade rising slowly toward Ran's face. You want my forehead? Ran asked him in a whisper too low for anyone else to catch. Yeah, I do, the Lud replied with another toothless grin. Rand smiled thinly. So take it. Then he slammed his forehead in the bridge of Bullseye's nose. The stainer never saw it coming. As he crumpled, Rand caught him, holding him upright and between himself and Boxer just long enough to snatch the shank from the stainer's limp hand. Then, in a single motion, he dropped the unconscious Lud and threw the blade. Most shanks weren't balanced well enough to throw, but some stainers took special pride in their weapons. Besides... This lud had to be called Bullseye for a reason. The shank flew straight, catching Boxer in the shoulder of the arm he had wrapped around Jenny's skinny, quivering body. He screamed and threw the old lass aside. Loud Jenny immediately ran off, her basket and its meager contents dropped and forgotten. Meanwhile, Boxer, visibly crying now, spun in a panicked circle, trying to pull the shank out of his shoulder and begging someone, anyone, to help him. So Rand obliged. Here, he said, let me give you a hand. As Boxer turned gratefully, desperately toward him, Rand delivered a left cross to the Lud's jaw that dropped him like a sack of rivets. He joined his three friends on the black's metal floor. The surrounding lower folk started applauding. Rand collected the stainer's weapons. He even pulled the shank out of Boxer's arm, grateful that the blade had only cut muscle and not a vein or artery. If it had, he'd have needed Lucy to heal the Lud, and she'd have raised a fuss at the very suggestion. You should have deaded them, Lucy remarked, coming forward. Melting out of the crowd behind her, the Yanceys stared at the fallen stainers and then up at Rand as around them the lower folks dispersed. The twins' look of undisguised admiration made Rand twitch. He'd never been comfortable with that sort of thing. You solid? he asked no name. Lucy, thinking he'd spoken to her, asked, Why wouldn't I be? But the Ludling simply nodded. Thanks for the warning, Rand told Lucy. Warning? You called my name. I figured you were trying to warn me. But she shook her head. I didn't even ken the stainers were there, she admitted. I was just trying to... Oh, come on! She seized Rand's hand and started pulling. You're missing it! What? Missing what? Up in the middle market. That's why we're late. We were watching. What's happening, Rand demanded. But he let her pull him along, all the while making sure no name was following. 
Torque's happening, Lucy replied. So, so hurry up. Torque? Rand hurried up. The third cog. He's amazing, isn't he? Julia Crowley sighed. He's brave, her sister Penelope agreed. I'll give him that. Standing between her two best friends, Ainsley Pinkerton could only nod. Torque. She was finally seeing him. She and her two friends stood, along with many others, atop the broad platform that hosted the market lifts, watching this man, this myth, this criminal. At the sight of him, Ainsley's first, she felt her heart rate climb. A stupid reaction, a child's reaction, unworthy of an upper lady, much less August Pinkerton's daughter. But this was Torque. He only ever appeared here, down in the middle market, and never according to anyone's schedule. Spotting him was like seeing a shooting star. You needed to be in the right place at the right time. And while Ainsley had heard stories told by other upper folk who'd witnessed him in action, this was the first time she'd been lucky enough to be on hand herself. The Lower's Champion The vast and ancient machine was separated into two clearly defined classes, the upper folk and the lower folk. The latter existed to serve the former. This was how it had always been, and hardly anyone Ainsley knew spared it a second thought, much less questioned its justice, except when Torque was around. Encased in his glistening golden armor, Torque kept ahead of the furious keepers who chased him, fleeing their clumsy pursuit with bravado and easy confidence. They circled him like hornets, brandishing swords and pistols, but he simply laughed and leaped from the roof of one gearbox to the next, ducking under pipes and slipping through gaps that seemed far too narrow for him. Here one moment, and elsewhere the next. Poetry in motion. And Ainsley thought suddenly, He almost reminds me of... Then Julia clutched her arm. Look, Baijai, he's doing it again! Simultaneously, a victory cry went up among the nearby lower folk. There were none on the lift platform, of course. They weren't permitted, and keepers stood guard to make sure they didn't try but scores of them filled the middle market, watching the spectacle unfold. It was almost as if they were theater-goers, upper and lower folk alike, all watching a particularly exciting stage play. Except Torque wasn't make-believe. Across the way, the lower's champion taunted his pursuers, dodging their sword thrusts, always staying just out of reach. One particularly agile young man, dressed like the others in the deep green colors of the keep, managed to get close by jumping an especially wide gap between roofs and landing atop an enormous heat exchanger. Like all such devices, this mechanism had been constructed hundreds of years ago by Ainsley's forebearers, from parts scavenged throughout the broken machine. The heat exchanger was as big as Ainsley's house, and that was pretty big. Its flat, iron roof was peppered with vents from which hot air rippled like phantoms. The exchanger's purpose was to bleed some of the heat that got trapped in the lowers and use it to warm the much colder uppers. It rumbled and rattled as it did its job. The young keeper drew both his sword and his pistol. As he did, Torque whirled on him. Ah, upper lud, think you can take me down? Ainsley noticed his use of lower slang. She also noticed that Torque had spoken loud enough to be heard, despite the huge drop that lay between them like the orchestra pit between an actor and his audience. The drop. 
There were many drops in the lowers, gaps between gearboxes that could be anywhere from inches to yards wide, with depths as much as a hundred feet. But there was only one drop. Occupying the geographical center of the machine, the drop was an open shaft reaching from its roof in the uppers straight down to the lowest part of the bowels. Two miles deep, a hundred feet wide and half that across, the drop was the dark and largely mysterious heart of the world. All roads, it was said, led to the drop. Ainsley spared just a moment to peer over the railing and down into the impenetrable blackness. No one knew what lay at the bottom. Nothing good, she supposed. Meanwhile, atop the heat exchanger, the young keeper drew his standard-issue single-shot pistol and fired. He missed badly, the bullet snapping a spark off a nearby vent. The lower folk cheered. The upper folk on the lift platform booed. Torque laughed, brandishing the broken pipe that was his signature weapon. The keeper dropped his empty pistol and lashed out with his sword, but his thrust was as rushed as his shot had been, and Torque smoothly sidestepped it. Then, pivoting, the gilded man parried the keeper's returning backhand slash with his pipe, pivoted again, and dodged yet another lower thrust, smoothly, easily. With more keepers clambering up onto the distributor, Torque offered his opponent a shrug. Thanks for the practice, but I'd better get going. He parried a final thrust and then used his shoulder to shove the young upper man off balance. As the keeper staggered backwards, arms pinwheeling, Torque raised the hollow end of his pipe. A shot of white steam issued forth, cutting the morning air, its force knocking the keeper off the dispenser and several feet down to the roof of an adjacent gearbox. There he lay, clutching his scalded face and writhing, as Torque confronted the rest, who now circled him. Another cheer rang through the middle market. Shouts of, Torque! 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 filled the air. Penelope remarked dryly, The animals are enjoying the show. Penny, please, Ainsley told her. They're people, not animals. If you say so. It was an old song between them. Torque had arrived in the market only half an hour ago appearing out of nowhere to taunt the patrolling keepers who, never known for their sense of humor, took up the chase immediately. At first, the lowest champion led them around the market on foot, navigating the rows of colorful stalls and tents, passing lower folk tradesmen and their upper folk customers. The latter had fled to the lift platform, with a contingent of keepers to protect them. Meanwhile, the tradesmen, some of them anyway, had quietly applauded their hero. Finally, the lower's champion lured his pursuers around the drop's perimeter and into the factory district, out of the way but still in easy view, putting on a show. As the chase wore on, his audience increased. By now, Ainsley guessed Torque's audience must number in the hundreds. Most were lower folk who had crammed together at the drop's market edge. The upper folk, like Ainsley and her friends, were far fewer, only two dozen or so, with a cordon of armed keepers at the foot of the platform stairs to guard them from the lower folk. Animals, Penelope had called them. A common insult. After all, it was widely accepted that the people who lived below the middle market were stupid, filthy, and ill-mannered, fit only for the factories, where they labored to make the goods that the market then sold to upper folk. This was simply how the machine worked. But Ainsley's mother, wife of the renowned upper lord August Pinkerton, had never shared that viewpoint. She and a small number of wealthy, like-minded upper ladies had briefly banded together to propose reforms. Marie Pinkerton refuted the philosophy that lower folk were beasts of burden, destined by nature to live short lives in servitude. 
Instead, she'd insisted that they weren't unintelligent, but simply uneducated, and with proper training could become partners to the people who occupied the top of the machine, rather than near slaves. It hadn't been a popular opinion. Some even called it blasphemy. If Ainsley's mother hadn't been who she was, she might have been charged with sedition. Instead, she died of fever. Five years ago now, and her proposed reforms had died with her. Ainsley studied the faces of the lower folk as they watched their champion, feeling a stab of pity for these downtrodden, half-starved people. Yet she noticed that, right now, most of them were smiling. The sight of Torque, their Torque, trouncing the keepers was clearly giving them some grim satisfaction. Pity aside, the sight did make her slightly nervous. There were a lot of lower folk on hand, their sheer numbers a little unsettling. Except the crowd, big as it was, didn't seem unruly, merely transfixed. Of course, lower folk came in different stripes. The licensed tradesmen, with shops in the middle market, were the elite of their kind, entrepreneurs of a sort. These were the only lower folk with whom most upper folk were comfortable, cleaner, better spoken, and, easily had heard, sometimes even partially literate. Those who lived deeper in the machine were another story, the factory workers, the poor, the sick, and the orphaned. Occasionally they ventured up to the middle market, which was as high as any lower person could reach. Here, and only here, could they mingle with those who lived above them in the sun, though mingle wasn't the right word. Whenever the wrong sort of lower folk bumped shoulders with an upper, a keeper was always on hand to chase away the first and comfort the second. Which, of course, was why Ainsley and the others of her class were here on the lift platform and the lower folk weren't. Dealing with licensed tradesmen was one thing, but fraternizing with bowels rats was firmly discouraged. Doing so could earn a stiff fine for the upper person. Ainsley had no idea what would happen to the lower person. The crowd abruptly cheered again, shaking Ainsley out of her musings. Atop the heat distributor across the drop, Torque was actively battling six armed men. He weaved among them, still laughing, as they slashed and stabbed at the spot he'd just vacated. None drew their pistols. In such close quarters, that would have been insanity. Instead, they closed in gradually, clearly hoping to strangle his maneuvering room. It was a technique that sanitation workers often used on rats, real rats, who found their way to the uppers. But Torque was no rat. Kicking one keeper in the face and striking a second one's helmet with his pipe so hard that it rang like a bell, the gilded man broke through their lines before firing another burst of steam, this time at the gearbox's metal roof. The force of the blast was enough to lift him up and over his pursuers' heads. He landed in a crouch behind two of them and, as they turned, swept out their legs with a single deft kick. Then, laughing, he rolled away and came up running. Nice move. Penelope admitted almost begrudgingly. Wasn't it, though? Julia added with a breathy sigh. I've heard the stories, Penelope remarked to Ainsley. I mean, who hasn't? But he's even more amazing than advertised. Ainsley suppressed a laugh. Penelope Crowley rarely showed admiration for anyone. Then her friend said, I guess a part of me still doesn't believe that... Ainsley finished the thought. Legends can come to life? Tales about Torque went back centuries, but the man himself had only appeared in the flesh about twenty years ago. No one knew how or why. But who is he? Julia asked, fanning herself with her hand as if afraid she might faint. It wouldn't be the first time. I mean, there has to be somebody behind that mask. A man. At that, Ainsley did laugh. 
I'm sure it's not just empty air. Another cheer rose up from the market as Torque dropped two more keepers before vaulting away in another plume of steam. A moment later, he landed with a flourish atop the heat exchanger's opposite corner, close to the edge of the drop. There's too many of them, Penelope said, scowling at the lower folk. They should have more keepers on hand, just in case. Ainsley, to her quiet shame, had been thinking the same thing. She said uncomfortably, It's not a crime to support your hero. Penelope looked unconvinced, though Julia remarked with a sigh, Especially one like him. My sister's in love again, Penelope muttered, rolling her eyes. Then she pointed at the lower folk. Look at that big one. Ainsley looked. An enormous lower man had appeared in the market. He wore, as most did, makeshift clothing that had been crudely fashioned from old burlap. He had a grimy face and dark, greasy hair. But he was huge, taller even than the tallest keepers, his shoulders and chest so broad that they threatened to tear through the cheap fabric covering them. Like the rest, he was watching Torque. No, not watching, idolizing. His face wore an almost trance-like fascination. Hero worship. Then Ainsley realized that this wasn't a man, at least not a grown man. This huge specimen was a boy, Ainsley's age, or maybe a little younger. With him were three other lower children, all similarly dressed. One was a girl, perhaps 17 years old, like Ainsley, but thinner and more petite, with a shock of unkempt red hair, framing a face made hollow from hunger. Beside her huddled twin boys, small and brown-headed. They looked like a family, a father, mother, and their children. But that couldn't be right. The lower boy and girl were much too young to be parents. As if sensing her interest, the boy met her gaze. His eyes were large and as dark as his hair. Ainsley expected to see in them the same carefully contained dislike that upper folk always received from lower folk. After all, Ainsley's people were their masters. But she read no resentment in this boy's gaze, only a passing curiosity, as if he was wondering why she was looking at him. And there was something else there, too. Ainsley had always considered herself, like her mother, progressive when it came to the lower folk. So why then was she surprised by how smart he looked? Julia uttered a startled scream. Ainsley turned back to her friends. Torque stood in front of her, right in front of her. His golden mask was only inches from Ainsley's face, smelling of sweat and grease. He'd steam vaulted from the heat distributor all the way across the drop, and that jump had brought him here, to the lift platform. To her, she gasped. For a moment, he didn't speak. Then, his theatrical bravado momentarily gone, he whispered, Ainsley. It suddenly seemed as if the whole of the machine had receded, leaving just the two of them standing there, alone. Ainsley tried to speak, couldn't. Torque said, I'm so sorry. His eyes, she thought. They were the only part of his face visible behind the featureless golden mask. A very particular shade of blue. A familiar shade. Who are you? she breathed. Beside her, Julia fainted. Not one of her usual melodramatic swoons either, but a full-out faint. Penelope, glaring at Torque, instantly dropped to her sister's side. This seemed to break the spell. Ainsley blinked and exhaled. Torque said, Looks like I've scared your friend, upper lady. His rakish demeanor was back, though it sounded forced. 
Around them, the other upper folk on the platform were screaming, while keepers charged from the direction of the market steps, their weapons already drawn. Suddenly, her bare hand was in his armored one, and he was holding it up to the dark slit that passed for a mouth in his mask. He kissed the back of it, warm metal against her skin. Her knees went weak, though not from girlish stupidity, from shock. Ainsley had only ever known one person to make such an old-fashioned romantic gesture. Stuart? she whispered. But he was already gone, running across the platform with the keepers in pursuit. He vaulted over the railing and dropped to the gearboxes below. Listening to his receding footsteps, Ainsley thought, It's not possible. That was when the shot rang out. There's loads more to come. Join us for episode two of Torque by Ty Drago. Or, if you can't bear the wait, the full novel is available in paperback and ebook formats on Amazon.com. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.